You are listening to the message by Antioch Centre for the Nations. For more information, please visit www.antiochcenterforthenations.org. Thank you. I have a message I want to share with you tonight. We'll go right into this. It's entitled, Your Life. Uh, as of 8 p.m. last night, I had no message. Uh, not my happiest place to be as a as a church leader, as a preacher and a teacher. I'm very cautious about my words, as the scripture says. Don't 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 want to be. Don't let many of us want to be teachers, because we're going to be held to a much higher account. Those that teach and preach. So I'm very cautious. I don't just want to grab anything. So if I don't have clarity, I just I go to sleep and. And the Lord began to speak to me in the night, and I had dreams, and then I saw uh, this picture and about your life. And the image I saw was like Life magazine. In fact, the advertisement I put uh, for the meeting, later you'll see Facebook, it looks like a Life magazine. It says, your life, uh, and then it talks about the these things we're going to see in the message tonight. But I want to start by looking at a couple of scriptures about your life. John 6, 63 says, The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. So we know that everything that Jesus spoke was life. And we know that his light brought us life. Uh, and he came, the word became flesh and dwelt with us. And we listened to him and his words are our life. Everything that he spoke to us will give us life. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. And it's because he is also spirit. You can do these mathematical equations with phrases in the Bible. It says God is spirit, right? It says God is light. So you could conclude that spirit is light. Well, that's pretty pretty accurate conclusion when you consider the road to Damascus with, with Saul of Tarsus and his experience and Jesus on the mountain and those things make sense. We know that God is love. So therefore love is light. So you find a common denominator that light is tied up to everything in the scriptures and that's what the Lord explained to me years ago. He said, Stephen, don't get confused. My love, my anointing, my power, my glory, my Shekinah, my healing. He went through like 60 things and he said, it's all the same thing. It's me and it's light. And he is light. That's why we won't need the sun or moon or the lamp in, in the holy city of New Jerusalem. We have him. And that light is the life of man. The light is the spirit breathing into us. Our life depends upon it, and he's the source. And the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So God made us really out of the organic matter of creation. We are a composite of the elements of this world. We know that the the event of creation was God's fault. He did it. I do not believe that things just happened. I saw this documentary the other day about bird nests and this one particular bird that makes a nest out of adobe or mud with straw. And it takes a long time. It takes weeks and weeks. But when it's finished, it is a beautiful home, like a clay globe 
home with an entrance and then a wall in the middle that prohibits any other bird from getting in to steal eggs. And one of the birds stays inside and the wall is built. It's walled in, it's securely in there. It's an impenetrable thing unless you take a hammer. And it's very hard the way the clay works out. And I started thinking, what idiot in their right mind would think that those birds evolved to be able to become architects of a home with a protective wall built in it? It's just, it's just ludicrous. I know God created all things, and we're made out of that same kind of mud that that bird makes that nests out of. God put that in that bird, of course, and we are composite of the elements of this age, but that's not what's important. We are dirt. We know that if we die, the Bible says ashes to ashes, dust to dust, so organically our value is very low. Last I heard was 67 cents or something like that. The value of the material that we made up, seriously, because honestly, it's a debt. Because you, no one's going to pay you for a dead body. If I killed you here and your body was on the floor or you died, I'm not going to get any money out of that. Outside of some insurance policy, I have to actually pay money to get rid of your dead corpse. So what value does this part have? No value. Of course, it's the life in us that is the spirit. So God gives us life. He has given us life from his spirit. He's the source of life. And once we have life, it's ours. Life is a gift that he gave us, but he gave us life when we were conceived in our mother's womb. And he knew us there, it says in Jeremiah. It says in other passages, he knew us before that. He had the plan to make us, and he already planned basically who we would be and what we would do. But when he formed us in our mother's womb, he was there watching, carefully attending to the development. But the gift of life came at the moment of conception that he made us. Life is from God's spirit. He watched us develop till we were born and brought into the population of earth. And then he leads us and guides us through the care of our parents and family around us then we have to live our own life. The life he has given us is now ours to live. We have to run the show. In fact, if we are not allowed to do that, we call it slavery. Uh, nobody wants someone else to control their life. Life given to you is yours for you to do with what you choose to do. God will never circumnavigate your choice about your life. He lets you decide. But there's some issues about it. We don't always consider life, the life that we live from God's perspective. We are usually trapped in the earthly perspective about life. So we judge life by what we see with our eyes from the perspective of time, from the perspective of this age. And we think of life from only an earthly perspective. Whenever we get in trouble in life, really the solution is quite simple. At the most base germane level of solution to the problem of life or any problems is to change perspective. So a heavenly perspective is totally different than an earthly perspective. And that's what the word really gives us. So we use the word life in many different ways. We, we say there's lifesavers, 
a lifeguard will be on the beach of Bondi. You know, maybe you've seen that show. I've watched quite a few episodes, and uh, it's interesting to see that we call things lifesavers, not the candy only that we eat, but it's designed after the lifesaver that you'll see, life jackets. So we are constantly wanting to preserve our lives. We buy life insurance. Uh, we, we understand life, but all of those definitions that we use of life have nothing to do with eternity. So categorically, there's eternal life, and then there's life on earth. But in actuality, there is no difference. Life is life. It still comes back to the breath that God breathed in us. So all this I'm saying that, that we do not always see from his view when we're stuck here on earth until our life is in trouble. And then when we're in trouble, of course, we pray. We go to God, we climb up in the Father's lap, and suddenly we're looking down from what he sees, and everything just makes sense. And life seems easy. The equations of life seem so much more tolerable in his presence because he sees it differently. So I, I'm thinking a lot about life. I think one of the reasons why this message occurred is because it's true to me. My mother recently had a knee surgery, and it went great and she wrote me and said it was wonderful she feels good and uh, I didn't hear from her for a couple of days but then I got a message from my brother and said mom is in intensive care and I said what what happened she said well after the surgery she was feeling great and she began to feel some abdominal pain at first it was maybe like gastritis or some issue but it got worse and worse and worse finally it was unbearable piercing and so she went to the emergency room my brother took her and they found that a section of her intestines had died so she had necrotic intestines very dangerous i mean once that there's this decay on the inside of course they did emergency surgery they went in and uh the picture i got my mother with the, the breathing tube and all the tubes into her her unconscious full of drugs in icu uh, not not fun days when you see that. You don't think, like I say, you don't think a lot about life until you see that. And you can show me pictures of your family in ICU. That's one thing. But my mommy in ICU is a whole different thing. So, of course, it shook me. I went into prayer. I, I uh, began to seek the Lord and believed God. I was happy to talk to my brother, talk to him through the night one night on the phone and um, because it's his daytime and he explained everything that was going on and I heard the whole story and I said, so how does she feel as she was going into this procedure? She said, he said, well, we prayed together. And I said, enough said. That's what I wanted to hear, that she prayed. She said, no, we prayed and we were serious, he said, and, and, and God's presence was there. So I'm glad that my brother is stepping up to that priestly role with her, and she's fine. And because I was prepared for the worst, but she's getting better. Uh, the tube is removed. Last message I heard her, she's watching Animal Planet and laughing at the animals, and and she wants a Coca-Cola. So God is, and they still have yet to, re, she's on a colostomy bag, and then that's going to be removed, and they're going to re, redo the intestines after all that part. They want to make sure they got everything out. So I'm believing everything's going to be fine in Jesus' name. Amen, you agree? So we, we hope for our parents. You know, my mother's life in danger kind of made me really start thinking about a lot of things about the fragility of life. It's so delicate. It's so precarious. I know we've all had friends. We've all had family that one day are fine and the next day are gone. And that shock, huh? 
a massive coronary arrest, something like that, or a tragic accident. So we knew that life is delicate. But I remember years ago, I said something to a man, a good friend of mine, perhaps one of my best friends. His son was dying. This is uh, years ago, maybe 12, 13 years ago or more. His son was dying. He's suffering from a disorder in his blood and in his body. And they had him on a lot of drugs, little boy, toddler. And they had him uh, on a lot of steroids to try to combat what was going on. So the poor little boy swole up and uh, was in pain and suffering. And it was very possible that the boy would die. So I went there to see my friend and, of course, to pray. And while I was there, God gave me a word for him that challenged my understanding of this all-valuable thing we call life. Because if it hadn't been from my relationship with the Holy Spirit and knowing when God speaks, I must speak what he says, I would have never given such a word. But God told me to tell him this. God does not value life the way that humans value it. And I thought, that's a cold thing to tell somebody whose son is done. And I've struggled with it. But I took a deep breath, and I know him well enough that even if I missed God, he would not kill me. And so I told him, but it turned out that even though it was an awkward phrase, the Lord spoke to me, it really ministered to him. It was very helpful to him, and he understood because it caused him to shift his perspective. And up to that moment, he pretty much had an earthly perspective of the drugs and the problems and the sickness and this, that, and the other. But when he heard God does not value life the way we value life, it's a different set of values. His values are based on an eternal plan, not a temporal plan. And it challenged him, and he listened, and he trusted. It shifted his faith, and God healed his boy. If I showed you his boy today, he's a beautiful man. He's a Marine, a U.S. Marine. He's a recruiter. He uh, has beautiful, I mean, he's gorgeous when you look at him. He's a big, buff guy, and he's, he's just God healed the boy and brought him through. So... As I was thinking about life, I thought about this phrase, your life. I say your life and my life are different. You have your life. I have my life. And I started thinking about that phrase. So that's exactly what I searched out in the scriptures. Where does it say your life? And it led me on a search. In fact, the phrase your life only appears um, in the New Testament about 30, 40 times in different permutations. And so sifting through that and reading, I sought out a deeper understanding of what God thinks about life. So this message is four biblical facts about your life. Now, what we want to do is, of course, you've determined now, is the whole solution to the problem of our misunderstandings of life is simply a change of perspective. Like my friend was able to change his perspective, God healed his boy. Like Jesus was able to change the perspective, even when people had died and said they were sleeping. That's a good example of a change of perspective about life. And when our children are ill, when there's issues like that, it's important that we get the right perspective. Number one, uh, your life is worrisome. This is the fact this is an unavoidable fact. Now, just because it's worrisome does not mean that you must worry. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? 
Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to his life? Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin to make fabric and make clothing. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. In other words, those that do not have an eternal perspective, they run after the substance and the, the value according to what can be measured on earth, the visible things. They run after that. Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. And Jesus says, don't run after that, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So I know that Jesus tells us here uh, to just not worry, but it kind of makes the phrase easier said than done seem oversimplified in this case. He said, well, it's easier said than done. Yes, but even more so in this case. Yeah, it's easy to say, don't worry about it. How many of you ever had someone tell you, don't worry about it, and it made you worry even more? Or it made you angry because you put yourself in my situation and try not to worry. And this is exactly what Jesus... Now, Jesus wouldn't have told us not to worry because he wanted to make us feel awkward and uncomfortable. If he told us not to worry, it's because he knew there was, in all truth, no reason to worry, no fruit from worrying, and no help that could possibly come from it. He knew that you're wasting your time if you're worried about things. So I started thinking about this, and he seems to imply that the future is going to take care of itself, doesn't he? So that... that Sufficient for tomorrow is the evil of it. It's got its own problems. Let tomorrow worry about tomorrow. You just live today. And we're going to see that revisited later on. Also, we're going to see some of the things that, that Solomon spoke concerning the same. But we know that the future will take care of itself according to Jesus. But from a logistical standpoint, we have to see that, that he gave us a balance. In fact, the, God's word gives us a balance and teaches us to not just not worry in the sense of being careless and not being responsible. Because why would it say in the word, consider the ant? And it talks about what the ant does, even storing for winter, putting things aside, making provision for the future. And so I started thinking about that because sometimes we get we misunderstand, I think, what Jesus was trying to tell us. Jesus is not saying, don't worry, quit your job, stay home, and just watch TV, binge Netflix and eat popcorn and don't worry, everything. Don't worry, the checks will come in the mail. Just chill out. You're OK. No, what he was saying was don't worry, but become practical in the reality of the fact God will take. He knows what you need, but God also gave you principles. Very simple principles about the ant, about working, about, for instance, the, the proverbial woman of Proverbs 31. 
I like what it talks about her, and I'll just uh, I'll quote it from here. It says, when it snows, she has no fear for her household. In other words, when the cold weather comes, she's not worried about it, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. How did that happen? Because of her. She makes coverings for her bed. She's clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells it and supplies the merchants with sashes. She's clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. Now, this means that Jesus did not mean that us not worrying meant not doing something. Because we do have to be responsible. But she's not worried. She laughs at the days to come. This is because of her diligence. And so really the antithesis of worry should be your diligence. You don't have to worry if you're diligent. It, it affects me. You know, I'm a, a teacher of the word of God, right? I preach, I teach, and uh, I have to be diligent. I have to prepare as a spiritual leader. The Bible says it's a study to show myself approved, a workman of God's word not being ashamed. So I don't have to worry about what I'm going to preach or teach does not mean that I don't have to prepare the messages because this takes a vast portion of my life from, as we just studied recently uh, in the school, from the realm of devotion to the place of, of actually writing down my revelations and then bringing it to this culmination of the two steps into the third of a presentation where I'm speaking these these things to you. This takes many, many hours. And it's not something that I just don't worry about. And I'm not worried about it because I know how to do it. In other words, this is my job. This is what I do. I'm not scared. I, I wake up excited on Sunday morning. I wake up excited knowing because I have a process. I have to wake up early because I know how long that process takes. I'm not lazy when it comes to preparations of, of messages. But if I were just to throw it off, no, I want to play Xbox a little longer. I really like that new golf game I have on Xbox. And I'll just play it a little bit more, watch another episode of my favorite TV show. And I have it more or less in my mind. Well, no, I'm going to be ashamed when I stand before you because I'm going to be disjointed. I'm not going to have a rhythm or rhyme to the flow of it. I'm not going to be able to connect the passages right. I'm going to fault in my job and what I have to do. In other words, I'm going to be irresponsible. So responsibility is not worry, is my point. Life is wearisome and worrisome. Life is difficult. You can't avoid that. You can't change that. So what do you do? You just prepare yourself. You deal with it by working hard, by being diligent, by fulfilling the principles that God gave us. Even if life surprises you with something, you still can be prepared spiritually in faith to trust God through the storm. Even if a horrible thing happens or a loved one is ill or an accident occurs, you still don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about it happening because if your life is grounded in the word of God, if you build your life and live it practicably upon the base of the words of Christ, it says when the rains come, the floods come and the storms hit your home, you're safe because you're built on a foundation and you can laugh at the days to come like that woman that was prepared. Don't worry. Not don't prepare, but just don't worry. Because if you're prepared, you don't have to worry. So do what it takes to eliminate the worry in your life. 
And by the way, if there's something that's out of your control, you need not worry about that either. And you're not going to be held responsible for that anyway. That's between that other human and God. Even if it's uh, your children or your spouse or your mother or even if it's relatives or if it's friends, don't, don't get under the guilt and worry about other people. Don't worry about yourself, but also don't worry about other people. So what do I do? The same thing. Do what you can to help them. You do whatever you can, but don't be overly concerned about things you can't change. Last week we talked about that. We also saw, or two weeks ago I think it was, where we saw the serenity prayer. We went through those words. It's just, you know, give me the, the wisdom to know the difference between what I can and cannot change. Let's go to number two. Your life is short. Even if you live a long time, your life is short. Recently, I posted a picture of that turtle, 187 years old. And they had a picture from 1883, was it? I think was the date uh, of that turtle. It looks the same pretty much as he did back then. How long their lives are. But even then, that's not so long. We know in the Bible, we see people living upwards to a thousand years. Methuselah was the longest lived human on earth. Uh, that's pretty amazing. But even that's not so long if you think about it in terms of the age of the earth and what's going on. But our lives may not. The promised years we have, how many are there? 80. We might have more. We might have less. I hope we all have more. I hope everyone in this room has more than 80 years. I believe I'm going to live to 120. But what I do know is even if I live to 120, that's not a lot of time. Life is short. And here... Jesus, again, he told them this parable. Luke 12, 16. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Now there's an important key to this passage because actually as we're looking at the words of Jesus, I'm kind of helping us decrypt some of the ideas we've had as believers when we read these things. Is, are you saying then here that he does not want us to store up anything? Didn't you just say we need to consider the end? Yes, but you're missing the key word here is for yourself. Things for themselves. Because the gospel in one word is others. God wants us to store up. God wants us to prosper. But if it's just for ourselves and we just want to just have our own things, that's not a solution and that's not what God intended. God wants us to love and care and provide for the people around us and do what we can. And life is short. Life is very short. There must be a balance of our emphasis on our life's work. Uh, we should value the spiritual above the physical and not let the cart roll beyond the horse. Because sometimes we do that. We, we have the cart 
We have the horse, but we get things out of priority, and suddenly all we want to do is amass a certain amount of wealth. And it's so precarious, too, in this age, in this time. And I hear so many sad stories of people who work their whole lives to save all this money for their children, even. And that's a noble endeavor to try to do that. But it's better to teach your children values that help them make money. That way, even after you're long gone, they have the ability to work hard, be diligent, and do what they need to believe God and walk in faith and have those things because uh, I think a lot of us my age, my demographic, anywhere from like 48 to 70, uh, we seem to have created a generation of monsters and and provide for them and take care of everything. I, I have a comedian that I like to listen to named Dana Carvey. He does this funny skit about his children and he sends them off to college and they call home. He says, we're cold. Why, what's wrong? There's, there's no heat in the dorm. What happened? Uh, they cut it off. Why they cut it off? I don't know. He didn't pay the bill. So he's freezing. He says, it's your fault. And he says that, you know, at that moment as a parent, you're like, just let them freeze because they need to learn the lesson. But I don't want them to be sad. That's what he said. So he just ends up providing in pain. And so he knows that his children, they don't, they don't really have the values he had that he grew up with. So we have a responsibility as parents too. But we need a balance in this. Look at James chapter 4, 13. We're talking about the fact that our life is short. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. That's our financial plan. Why? You do not even know what will happen. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. So James suggests here that we leave the planning up to God. He's not saying don't plan. He's just saying make sure your plans are subject to God's purposes. Trusts in his directives. Note the difference. Now one option of living life is to make the plans without God's counsel. And we know that it all comes to an end that is not beneficial because, you know, unless the Lord builds the house, our labor is all in vain. Uh, there are many of the thoughts of man, but only the counsel of the Lord will endure. I can go on quoting scriptures all night. But we know that one option is that we make plans and we exclude God. And it may be temporarily valuable, you know, but all it takes is one lawsuit. I've seen it happen. I've had friends of mine that were doing quite well and everything was great and it just took a couple of lawsuits of their company and everything was gone. Anything can happen. And it really wasn't their fault, so to speak, but it's things can happen. You never know. So how about we just let God take care of everything? God's will clause, I call it. And that's what James is advocating. Don't say, we're going to do this, that, the other, and we're going to be great. No, it's better that you say, look, if the Lord lets us, I want to do this. In other words, make a plan, but subject it to God. David did that consistently. He would ask God, I want to go after the Amalekites that have raided Ziklag, but will I overtake them? Will you, is it a good plan? And there are times in that process that God would tell David, no, you won't. You won't succeed. Don't do that. And he would give him an alternative. So that's what we're saying. Life is short, so make sure you put it in the hands of God. Number three. 
Your life is God's. Now, life was given to you, yes. But talent was also given. Talents to the servants. And then there was a day of reckoning that came. As day of accountability where God returns. God gives us value. God gives us life. He gives us the breath of life. But he's expecting us to do the right things with it. And he's watching us. And sometimes we get confused. Peter, it says in Matthew 16, 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Because Jesus just told him that he's going to be handed over to men and crucified and murdered. But on the third day, he'll rise again. Peter wants to protect him. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it if, you, if it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. So God is the author of life, and we all know that. God is the one that made it. But after he gives it to us, we have a choice about what to do with it. Colossians 3.1 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I like that. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is what happens when we receive Jesus. We have life. Everyone has life. We receive it. And even the measure of faith is given to all men. Faith is the ability to believe anything good or bad. So we walk in that, we make choices. Those of us who make the choice as sheep and not goats to accept the purpose of the Father for our life through his son, Jesus, we're born again. And our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And we're separated to a category of those that are called out of darkness into his light. And he reveals purpose to us. And all things work together for our benefit because we love him. We're called according to his purposes. All those scriptures apply to us. God gives us that life, but then he's watching us what we do with that life life in regards to him. And Jesus says it like this. You can save your life for yourself, but if you do that, you're going to lose it. But if you give your life to me, you'll save it. Because that's exactly what God expects. The greatest kind of worship that we can give to him, our reasonable service, it says in one scripture, is to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to him. It's simply lordship. If you call him Lord, that means he's your master. He is Adonai. Our master, Adonai, also means owner. He bought you with a price. If you have believed that Jesus did what he did for you and you've accepted, that means that the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, is a, an archive of title deeds to the humans on earth that believe. You belong to God. And he's expecting you to keep him in the loop about every choice, every decision, 
and think the way he thinks. Once again, you see that perspective here. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Change your perspective. Don't see it from down here. See it from up there. Let's go to the fourth one. It's the last section. Your life is your responsibility. 1 Timothy 4.14, do not neglect your gift which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. This means be custodian and guardian of your own life. And doctrine. Doctrine is what you learn and believe very closely. Protect it, guard it, watch it, persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. So you must keep a close eye on the status of your heart and soul in this life. It's so easy to get off track. It's so easy uh, to get caught up. Today I was teaching in uh, the morning service with the Chinese group. I was teaching about uh, in journey with Jesus when... Peter came and said to Jesus, Jesus, uh, if my brother offends me, how many times do I have to forgive him? Seven? Is that cool? Seven's okay? And Jesus said, no, no, it's seven, 70 times seven, which is 490. He didn't mean that because then he says, well, let me tell you a story. This is a man who held his servants to account and he had one guy that owed him 10 thousand talents like 10 million dollars let's say and so he said you pay me what you owe me and he did not have enough not in his whole lifetime would he have enough to pay him back the debt was way beyond what he could pay in fact it exceeded the value of himself his wife and his children according to the story of jesus so all he had left to do was humble himself and beg jesus for mercy get on his knees and say please Forgive me, he says to the master. And the master turns to him and says, all right. He said to him, Let, I'm going to do my best to pay you back. But instead, he says, look, don't even worry about it. You never have to pay me. I forgive the debt. And what a happy man. That's salvation. That's what happens when we're born again. We get saved. We could have never paid back the debt of the iniquity and what we owe for our sin because we were born into that. But he took it away and we're free. And we march out there in freedom. And then we find a Christian brother or sister or someone else out there, another human on earth. And they owe us a hundred denarius, which is about a hundred dollars. The balance of like he owed 10 million, it's forgiven. This guy owes him a hundred bucks. And he says, where's my hundred bucks? He says, I don't have it. And he says, well, you need to give it to me or I'm going to get you thrown in jail. And he begged the exact same words that that man said to his master, his fellow servant told him. He said, look, just give me some time. Please have mercy on me. He got down. He humbled himself. He asked for mercy. He said, no. In fact, he had him arrested and thrown in prison. Well, the other servants that observed all this were very upset about it. It says greatly distressed. Because it's stressful when you see people that have trouble with forgiveness and can't let things go and they hold on to it because that's exactly what Jesus was teaching about. In other words, nothing can take you out of his hand, it says. Nothing can take you from the Father's hand, the Bible says. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. It gives a whole list of things, but you know what it doesn't put in the list? You. How can our names be blotted out of the Lamb's Book of Life? Because it's possible. 
I found the only thing that can do it. Our unforgiveness. The most dangerous poison in the life of humanity in a relationship with eternity is the inability to just let things go. And that we are held accountable with the ability to do We've got to let things go. God is so merciful. He's so forgiving. I was reading about Manasseh, the king. And a friend of mine made the post. It was really good. Uh, a shout out to my buddy, Paul Brill. Uh, we were missionaries many years ago together in on the mission field in my first year. And we, we become fast friends and had a wonderful time together. In fact, he's the guy that threw my cookies into the woods. You may have heard that story before. And he's the one that put a boulder in front of my house and blocked me from getting out. He's the one when we were sick that gave us a, a pot of, of lukewarm water with a moldy potato in it and put the time he slid it and said Nikos it's okay I know you're sick we made some soup for you and it's just this cruel practical jokes like he that's but don't worry I got him back many many things and but I had a lot of fun with him he's a, he's a great guy but he posted online and it really caught my eye he says this uh, so you think that what you've done or what anyone has done is beyond God's forgiveness Consider Manessa. It says, this is actual quotations from the scriptures I'm going to read to you about Manessa, written in the Bible. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, following the detestable practices of the pagan nations that the Lord had driven from the land ahead of the Israelites first. Second, he rebuilt the pagan shrines his father Hezekiah had broken down. Third, he constructed altars for the images of Baal and set up the Asherah poles. Fourth, he also bowed before all the powers of the heavens and worshipped them. Five, Manasseh also sacrificed his own sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. He practiced, number six, sorcery, divination, and witchcraft, and he consulted with medians and um, psychics. He did much that was evil in the Lord's sight, the Bible says, arousing God's anger. Manasseh even took a carved idol that had been made and set it up in God's temple as God. I mean, you're thinking God should have just called fire down on this man. This is like the darkness gone awry, just crazy. The Lord spoke. Manasseh ignored all his warnings. He sent prophets to him. He did all this. And this is Old Testament too, by the way. Assyrian armies then came because God allowed it, took Manasseh prison. They put a ring, an iron ring, in his nose and a chain and led him away and bound him in bronze chains and led him away to Babylon. But while he was in captivity, this is, I quote verse 12 in this passage, in deep distress, Manasseh sought the Lord his God and sincerely humbled himself before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed, the Lord listened to him and was moved by his request. So the Lord brought Manasseh back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. And then Manasseh finally realized that the Lord alone is God. That's a beautiful picture of unlimited mercy. And no matter what happened, and if our God is that benevolent, and that kind to us, that's a man that owed 10 million talents. 
so much. He could have never paid that back. And God forgave him. So it is with us. We need to make sure we hold no grudges. The most dangerous thing we could ever do. Be very cautious. There's another passage here uh, we're looking at about our responsibility. James chapter 3 we read, likewise the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. And we're talking again about your life being endangered by nothing except yourself. The tongue is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. So we have to be really cautious with our words. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. Therefore my dear friends as you have always obeyed not only my prayers but now much more in my absence continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. Life, your life is your responsibility. And the most Important elements are simply these two things. Forgiveness and your mouth. Watch what you say. Better just keep your mouth quiet and shut. Don't be quick to speak, it says, when you go to the house of God. Don't be quick to render judgments over people because with every measure you meet out, it will be measured back to you again. Judge not, you will not be judged. Don't hold grudges. Watch out because you can set your life on fire with your own phrases. Life is our responsibility and God is not going to live it for us. We have to deal with this. So all of this can be overwhelming and it seems that we need more wisdom about this and so I'm going to close with Solomon's view of life. Uh, now, we know that Solomon was the wisest man ever lived, right? Really smart guy. Uh, some of his words are controversial, but they're Bible. And I like that. I mean, there are there's balancing passages that Solomon spoke that kind of create a primer or a delicate balance of many other passages that bring things back in equilibrium. Uh, this is what it says about specifically about life in his words. Uh, number one, it's grievous and he hated it. And he starts with this. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless and chasing after the wind. So this is the same thing that we saw in the New Testament about life being worrisome. It's always going to be issues, always going to be problems. The second thing he says is life can be bearable if you stay busy. And not think so much. So this is what I have observed to be good. That it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. What's he saying? Prosperity, real prosperity that comes from him is God's gift to man. And if someone has it, enjoy it. I meet people all the time that have the wherewithal to live prospered and blessed and rich. And I'm so excited because I know God made that happen for them. Enjoy it while it lasts. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Next, he says, having fun 
in life is good. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of their life. God has given them under the sun. And finally, I like this one. Family is life. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love. Bob and I yesterday celebrated our 34th anniversary. And I'm thinking, wow, 35, that's half of 70. We might be able to make it to our 70th anniversary. My wife's probably not going to want that because she's looking at 80. She's got kind of a checkout date already, but uh, I would be so honored and happy to live another 35 years at her side until we reach the 70th anniversary. But right now we're just going to aim at the 40th it was so funny because I said, honey, where do you want to go for our anniversary? We'd go anywhere. I named all kinds of restaurants. And we ended up watching Netflix and eating off the coffee table. Because it's the weekend. There's too many people in the restaurants. and See, that's how you know you're, you're maturing. You don't, yeah, what, no, no, no. It's not about the patency or the pretense. that You'd rather just be comfortable and enjoy. So we had a great time yesterday, actually. Ate some uh, delicious food together and had fun. My wife made some really cool stuff. Family is life. The days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days, just enjoy your family. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. He keeps on mentioning that there's going to be issues, there's going to be problems, but there's some things in life that make you happy. Food, uh, drinking what you choose to drink. I'm not saying what you're going to drink or how you're going to drink it. It's your choice. Solomon's not ruling out anything. He's just saying, just enjoy your life. And it talks about incrementally says exactly that those things, but it says, enjoy your life with your wife. Enjoy your family. I enjoy my grandchildren so much. I love being around them. Isn't it fun? It's just this constant enjoyment. I'm looking at Mary because I know she has their grandbabies now and, it's so nice because you can just have all the fun and give them back to mommy. So you need to take care of her, right? She needs to take care of her. Four biblical facts. This is what we saw. Your life is worrisome. Your life is short. Your life is God's. Your life is your responsibility. But the hope of it is it's your life. So live it. Enjoy it. Listen to Solomon. Solomon also said, don't be overly righteous. I like that. He said, don't be overly right. Sometimes we can just be so righteous-minded in the sense of living this perfect holy life and kind of miss out on just, just relax, chill out, basically, is what Ecclesiastes is saying. Just take some time to enjoy, to breathe. Do what the Father says, but you're going to find that the Father actually wants you to have fun. Uh, he is the author of the enjoyment of life as much as he is the responsibilities of life. And if you live them in their right increments and follow the word of God, he will bring you into a place of constant joy and happiness. Amen. So live your life in the presence of God. Live your life for God. If you save your life for yourself, you lose it. But if you use your life to serve Jesus. Well, how can I serve Jesus? How do I give my life to Jesus? It says it. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. It's what we do with other people. We live for other people. We love other people. We spend time with them. That includes our families. I live for my wife. I live for my children. I live for my grandchildren. By extension, I live outward because the base of my home, the overflow of my home is my ministry. A minister is only what he is at home.
And if you don't have there, if you don't have love and life there, there's nothing really for you to market. And so it starts there and overflows and we can all do that and have such a blessing to the nations and to the people. I know my wife is and we are eager to move on to do more. Amen. Let's stand up. We're going to pray.